people around them are sort of talking about the fact that group of people that are over there that are meeting over there, they're just a bunch of contentious people. They're just always having problems and issues over there. So that's sort of the idea of the last word in the verse. That word also indicates the fact, which indicate the motivation for the conflicts. It, it would typically be used to describe the spoils of war. Why, why countries went to war. Countries went to war to gain territory. Countries went to war to gain the possessions, the wealth of the other, of the other people. And so, and so this, war, this word here, this last word, not only indicating this is it something that's becoming like an overall atmosphere, but it also says, and this is why they're doing it, because they're doing it because they want to gain something for their selfish reasons, for their own personal uh, accomplishments and achievements. And so <clears throat> James is, of course, I think as you can get the flavor right away, that he's going to build a case against this because he asked the question, where do these things come from? And he identifies the fact that they come from, in, in the New King James, it says, from your desires for pleasure. Your desires for pleasure. Uh, could also be translated by the word lust uh, or, or strong desires or whatever. Uh, so uh, that is what there's here. There, in this context, we have a couple of different words. Typically, there's one word that we find translated pretty consistently through the New Testament by the word lust or, or strong desires, depending on whether it's a newer translation or not. Uh, in this particular context, James chooses to use a couple of different words to, to come across with the same idea. I was not really able to find a distinction between them. I am sure in the original setting, somebody depending on how they would have used the word, probably had a little sl slight uh, difference in the way, way the word was used from their perspective. But I, I really can't make that observation here and make it with any kind of um, strong opinion behind it. And so we have here, again, this whole matter of strong, inner strong desires, They're this uh, personal selfish ambition that we find in, amongst these people. He goes on to say in verse 2, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. And we won't go really a lot into this verse, but he's basically just saying all this conflict's getting you nowhere. You're just ending up spinning your wheels. You, you're, you have a really strong desire to have something, but you're not able to lay hold of it. You're not able to have it. You, uh, you've, you're fighting and warring amongst yourselves. You murder and you covet. By the way, I think the word murder here probably is used in the way that Christ used the word murder in, as he spoke in Matthew, uh, and just the idea probably of spiritual um, uh, slander, spiritual uh, murder, probably not talking about actually taking of somebody's physical life, but the, the attacking, the destruction of somebody through slander and through gossip. And so he says, you do all these things, and you don't end up with anything. You're getting nowhere with with your efforts, with your war, with your, with your struggle. <clears throat> and, but he says, yet you do not have because you didn't ask. And he says, basically, the way to get things <clears throat> is to ask for them, <clears throat> not, not to take them. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it's not a matter of taking things. It's a matter of asking for things. It's a matter of inquiring for things. So he says, you got all this fighting going on, all this coveting and so forth. And you, you don't end up with anything. But in the reason you're not is because you're not going about it the wrong, right way. You're not going about it by, with an attitude of asking for something or earning something. Instead of trying to take it, you need to approach it from a different direction. 
And then it goes, and right away, it's sort of interesting here between verse 2 and 3, for me as I read down through here, I see James sort of stopping, you know, and taking a breath and saying, I've just told these people they can have things if they ask, but you've got to ask correctly. You've got to ask with the proper motivation. You've got to ask with the proper attitude. Because he says very quickly then, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so James wants them to change their attitude and their approach in their relationships. He doesn't want them to continue to struggle and quarrel and have conflict. He wants them instead to have conversation and communication. But he says, just talking isn't enough. You have to talk with the right approach. You have to talk with the right attitude. You have to ask appropriately. Now, I'm doing a little bit of um, loose interpretation here, I guess you could say, but I'm trying to make it so that this actually works for us where we're sitting at today and where we're, where we're at today. So he says, you know, you, you, but you have to ask correctly. But you don't, and so then you don't have it because you're, you're really asking not for the benefit of everyone. You're only asking it for yourself. You only ask it so you can spread it on your own, <coughs> on your own <coughs> pleasures. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and then again here in the context, he, he sort of has this train of thought that he's going through all the way down through this, this chapter, but he has the, these little side trails that he sort of takes off of this theme from here, here and there. So now he's going to talk about unfaithfulness, beginning in verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Spirit says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he isolates some of them, identifies some of them, um, it, it was a very common thing in the Old Testament for uh, the relationship of the Israelites to be uh, compared to a proper relationship between a husband and wife and an improper relationship between a husband and wife when one of them goes outside of the um, marriage vows and, and for physical uh, purposes and physical reasons. And so uh, the Old Testament uses that as an analogy throughout the, the Old Testament. Here James is using the same thing. Again, he may or may not be people referring to people that are actually involved in an in a extramarital affair when he refers to adulterers and adulteresses, though he may be, very, very likely could be, but may not, that, but more the idea of people that are living their lives more in regard to the approval of the world than in regard to the approval of, mankind, of, of God. So, so he's saying to them, you are living with, again, you, you ask for something, you don't get it because you're asking amiss. And then he's saying here, and you are having the wrong associations. You're living your life according to the world's principles instead of living your life according to biblical principles. And so he, he calls them out on that very, very strongly. And he not only calls them adulterers and adulteresses, but he also calls them an enemy of God. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not really sure where it was, but I know it was after um, I was an adult, I mean a young adult probably, but I remember the first time that I really came across the passage in the scripture where it described me as an enemy of God before my salvation, and that was like, really? I really didn't, never thought of myself as God's enemy, I never really thought of myself as being opposed to God that strongly, 
But that's what the scripture says. The scripture says that we were, were at enmity with God before salvation, before Christ changed our lives. And so here he calls out these people on the fact that they are in fact at enmity with God. They're, they're an enemy of God. You can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God both. And then he makes a reference in verse 5. <clears throat> this reference appears to be a quote from the scripture. Um, it may be an adapt- adaptation from the scripture. Um, most that I read seem to believe that it's just a general summary of biblical principles. Okay, So verse 5 appears to be a quote. Verse 6 definitely contains a quote. I don't know if your Bible, the version of your Bible reading would show that. Uh, mine does. Uh, but but verse 5, um, it says, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain? Or he says, to put it a different way, he says, why do you think the Scripture says that the spirit who lies, dwells within us is, is, is yearning toward jealousy, is jealous of who we are? Why do you think the Scripture says that? Okay? So it's not a direct quote. Uh, there's a couple verses that are similar to it, but it seems to be more a summarization. James is summarizing uh, the overall biblical principles of the fact that as a believer, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and the Holy Spirit is working within us, you could say even striving with us at times, for us to do the right thing, for us to obey, be, be what God wants us to be, instead of the direction we're headed, which is a direction of warfare, a direction of friendship with the world, a direction of selfishness. And he says, you know, the Spirit is within you with the intention of guiding you and directing you and leading you where you ought to be. But we are, you know, sometimes, at more times than others, we are struggling against the Spirit and not wanting to do what the Spirit wants us to do. And so that, that is the idea that he captures here in this particular verse, verse 5. The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, or the spirit who dwells within us is, is fighting a battle. He is, he is fighting a battle within us to win us over to the ways of God, over to God's principles and, the, and what God wants us to be. And so the Holy Spirit's there. And this is one of those places in Scripture where we have God's sovereignty, God's might, and man's responsibility, okay? And, and uh, you know, uh, there are times when God just does something. Uh, when he Saved, saved us, he just did something for us, okay? And the results of what God just did for us was the expression of repentance, the expression of faith, but God just did it, okay? But then there are other times when God says, here's what I want you to be, here's, here's what I want you to do, and he, he allows us then to exercise our own will in the matters of doing that or not doing that, Okay? God could put every one of us on a path of perfect righteousness from the moment he saves us, but he chooses not to do that. He chooses to hold us responsible for being obedient, for pursuing holiness, for practicing righteousness, okay? And so at times God just says, you're, you're within, always within that will of God, but there is that matter when God allows us a responsibility for responding, and that is what is, again, James is calling these readers here to this change in their lives to a different way, to a different approach uh, to, to life.
So uh, I'm not giving you much chance for thought, and I'm watching the clock. I guess I'm going to have time to get through this so I can slow down a little bit for you maybe. But uh, anybody, uh, any thoughts about the idea of the responsibility or, <coughs> or whatever in this, in this whole matter? Okay. Verse 6 is a verse of encouragement, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's, in this particular context at least, it's just a matter of our approach, our attitude. How, how, do, we, how do we approach life? Are we approaching life from a proud aspect where we're self-sufficient, independent, uh, not in need of anyone else or anything else? Or are, in fact, are we approaching life from a point of humility where we recognize, first of all, our dependence on God, and then secondly, our interdependence on one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he says the grace is sufficient and grace is available, but he gives it to the people that are coming and asking for it in humility, not asking for it in an attitude of pride. And here we're going to then, <clears throat> we move into a, a series of commands down through here, beginning with verse 7. I Hopefully I'll be able to remember to get, point them out to you. Um, the commands all are, they're all written from a grammatical standpoint. And again, I say that. I don't want to get too tied down always into the grammar or whatever. But as God chose to communicate the New Testament in the Greek language, he chose to communicated in a language that has a lot of precision to it, uh, a lot of um, very careful grammatical construction. Uh, English can be really sort of a hodgepodge of stuff sometimes. Now, don't take me too far if you're an English teacher or an English person. I'm not, don't take me too far, but there's a lot of like, yeah, whatever about English sometimes. Uh, again, as I've said before, oftentimes we communicate in English with voice inflection or body language or whatever. In, in the original language, the Greek language, uh, it was more the way it was penned on the paper. It was more the way that whatever spelling of a word that was chosen to use because that indicated something to those readers, to those people. And so we're going to enter here a section that has a lot of imperatives in it, a lot of commands in it. And the way those commands are formed indicate two things. One is that he's probably calling on them to begin doing something. It's something that he's not seeing them doing. Now, now, there may have been individuals in the group doing it, but the, he's calling on a corporate response. He wants them to corporately begin to do this. And also, that particular form of the word probably uh, is, is stressing the intensity of it, the, the necessity of it. This is, you know, he's not leaving. It's not only a command, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important command, if I, can, if I can put it that way. And so he starts that with this submit to God uh, in, in verse 7. Again, this word submit is uh, tied to the word for humble in the previous verse. Uh, this is a word from the military word. It's a word that would indicate to take your proper place, for the soldier to take their proper place in, in, the, in the platoon or, or the squad. Uh, when, when I was in basic training, they assigned us to a, <clears throat> by, well, the barracks we were in just, uh, decided the platoon we were in. And then within that, there were squads, and you, you, you lined up in a certain squad, 
and you lined up in a certain number place in that squad. You couldn't just line up wherever you wanted to. Now, in basic training, it wasn't all that important, but it was part of their foundational training to get us to obey and to be and to understand the importance of doing that. And so that's that, this word. This would be that word that they would have used from the Roman vantage point, from the Roman standpoint of, of getting into proper, your proper military place. Uh, here it's an idea then of being properly in place before God, and also I think sometimes the proper place within a body of Christ. Now I don't want you to take that too far, but just understand that we all have that. As we, as we move along. Therefore, submit to God. Uh, then he continues that. Resist the devil. Again, a com- another command. Submit, submit his command. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I'm going to point these back out again a little bit later, but notice that as a result of the, re- of the resisting, that he's going to flee from us. This is a promise. This is what you could underscore or underline as a promise that James is making to his readers. If you follow the, if you do this step, this is what's going to happen, and it, this is, a, this is a, written in a such a way as to expect, a, um, to expect the result. The result is not left up in the air as a potential or a possibility. It is this is going to happen. You resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then it goes on to cleanse your hands, you, excuse me, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Um, this has with it the idea of returning, uh, so it is showing maybe... Maybe they haven't gotten miles away from God, but they've, they've turned their back on God. They've taken their eyes off of God. Uh, different degrees, I guess, it depends on the individual. But, you know, start, return to God. Draw near to God. Look back at God. Put God in your, God in your focus. Um, and so draw near to God. And then the, the second promise in this promise, statement, and he will draw near to you. So resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, cleansing your hands, a ceremonial cleansing at least to begin with, but uh, again, just calling on us to do something that is basic, okay? Uh, washing our hands is a pretty basic part of life, a pretty basic thing, um, and, and so I think he does that as sort of as a starting point with like, okay, I'm just down here at the very bottom. We're down at the very big ba- basic things here, but this is what, something you need to do, and that is to wash, wash your hands, cleanse your hands. And he refers to them as sinners. I've been using that word brothers a lot throughout this context, throughout this book, but all of a sudden he identifies them or isolates them as sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded what do you think is involved in purifying your heart? What, any thoughts about that? I mean, washing our hands, that's pretty simple. We can all, we can all take turns and go over to the bathroom sink and wash our hands. But what, what is involved in the cleansing of our hearts? Laura? Asking for forgiveness? Absolutely. Because he does tell us, promise us in First John that that will take place. Cleansing does take place when we're confessing our sins. Brenda? Okay, having faith in God. Yep. Um, okay, think about it. Okay, uh, I'm not going to tell you a whole lot more about it, but yeah, it's 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 that matter of forgiveness. It's that matter of just recognizing sin, identifying sin in our lives, repenting, uh, recognizing that we need uh, that uh, again. It is 
if I can put it in simple terms, the best way to cleanse our hearts is to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. It sounds sort of simple, but just read the Scripture. Just read the Scripture. You find your life a spiritual mess. You find your life going in a direction you don't want it to go. The, the solution is just immersing yourself in the Scripture, just reading the Scripture and, and, and hiding yourself in the Scripture. Isaac? Okay. Okay. And, and uh, I have noted here that uh, in, in reading or studying for this, that was m- mentioned that there, the whole idea of battle and, fil- and all that would leave their, have left their hands filthy, ceremonial filthy at least, to, to clean that. This idea of purifying here is a word that is associated with to be holy, to set apart, to sanctify. So it, it is a decisional thing. It's, it is a matter of, again, recognizing that I'm headed in the wrong direction, and I need to reorient myself, and I need to reorient myself in relationship to God. And so uh, we're going to cleanse our hearts, hands, excuse me, purify our hearts. Again, these are these commands, cleanse and purify. You double-minded. Remember back in, in chapter 1 when he talked about double-minded people? Okay, we're unstable in all our ways. We're tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea, of the ocean. So he, he pulls this analogy back out at them, again, of the, of the double-minded, the person who, who can't make up their mind which direction they want to go. Do they, do they want to be a warrior and warring with people, or do they want to be following God? They want to be doing what God wants them to do. And then he gives them three quick uh, commands in a row in verse, uh, the next verse here, verse 9. Lament, mourn, and weep. Uh, let's see if anybody has a different word than the word lament. Mike? Grieve, okay. Laura? Be miserable, okay. Um, anybody else? A different word for lament? Steve? Afflicted, okay. Isaac? Huh? I'm so- Wretched. Sorry, sorry, Isaac. Uh, yeah, it, I have down to become wretched, uh, it, 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 to be real about sin. Now, I'm not sure exactly how the, where the commentator got that, but that was what he wrote down, and I thought it sounded, it sounded at least what James' intent was. may not be tied directly as a vocabulary definition, but it's certainly his intent to be real about our sins. This is the only time this word appears in the New Testament, um, and, uh, but it doesn't make any difference except for the fact that we don't have any other context to help us to better understand it. So we're to become wretched, we're to be um, lamenting, over this sin that they've been involved in. What about the word mourn, the middle word? Anybody have different words there? Anyone? Everybody got mourn? Oh, you are? Okay. And the last word that is there is weep. Again, it's probably, probably everybody probably has that. But, uh, so we don't have to define. Mourning is intense, visible grief, grief, and weeping is because of shame. We are, we are actually weeping because of the shame we feel as we have identified the sin within our lives. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Okay? And, and he's not wanting us to go around all the time with a sad face. He's not wanting us to, you know, to never have anything enjoyable in life. That's not his intent. His intent is, is uh, contrasted with the, just the pursuit of selfish ambition. Typically, when we're pursuing selfish ambition, we have a sense of satisfaction, a sense of happiness, a sense of, of good positive feelings if we're doing what we want to do, at least temporarily. And James says, stop doing that and turn all this. And, and sometimes laughter can be frivolous. It doesn't always have to be frivolous, but sometimes it can be frivolous. And he's telling them to turn, turn away from them. Um, this particular command, uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom, uh, it adds to it a different, one more twist to it grammatically. And that is that the implication is, is let someone else change you. And, and taken into the context, we've already been introduced to the fact that the spirit lives within us to, to work in our lives and to, to battle our inclinations to sin, to struggle with that. So we could, I think, add, we could sort of add here, it would be something you want, want to put in brackets, but let the Holy Spirit change you. Let the Holy Spirit change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Let's, let somebody else do this. Implied in it probably is the fact that we really aren't capable of accomplishing this. We have to turn this over to someone else. We have to allow someone else to do this from the outside and accomplish it on the inside. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Again, allow yourself to be put in the right position, the right place. Um, been a long time ago, but I, I'm more than sure that I remember at least on more than one occasion when I fell out for uh, in, into my our platoon and everything. I'm sure there more than at least one, more than one time the drill sergeant pointed somebody out, probably me included, and said, "You're in the wrong place. Move over here." And so we we were being moved by someone else. We were being told by someone else to do something. And so that is again the idea here of of letting somebody um, hum, put us in the right place. And he will lift you up. And he will lift you up. And the, another of the promises that are included in this context. Do something and he will flee. He, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here, let, your, let yourself be changed by God. Let yourself be changed by the Holy Spirit. And, and he, will, he will lift you up. He will restore you to where you ought to be. Pick, up, pick us up, put our feet on solid ground instead of where it has been. And so again, the promises in here is this idea that uh, there will be a, Satan will flee from us, God will draw near us, and God will lift us up if we are responsive and do those things that he wants us to do. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Um, do not, uh, very, very, at least here to do King James, uh, very clearly is indicating this is something that they are doing, that they need to stop doing. 
This is something they're used to, they're sort of falling into the habit of doing, and they need to stop doing that. Uh, I have worked, I have speak evil. What does anybody else have anything different there that, that, and that New, King James, New King James has? Come on in, folks. Come on in. Uh, speak evil. Come on in. Anybody have diff- something different than speak evil? Speak against? Slander. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, speaking evil, slander, uh, speaking against. Um, it, you know, it is... The, the speaking against really probably is as literal as it can get. I don't know if that makes any difference for you the way you're thinking about it, but it is, it is talking about people slandering them with the intent of hurting, and the intention of of bringing harm to them, of, of taking something away from their character, taking something away from them, okay? Um, and so we're told here not to do that, not to be uh, speaking evil one another. It goes on then to basically discuss for the next uh, couple of verses the matter of judging and so forth. Um, we're, we're told in one of the pl- places in the gospel that we are, in fact, to, to be examining fruit that other people are producing, we're to be doing that. So this idea of judging one another, it's something that we have to really keep in balance. It really is a delicate balance, I think. Um, sometimes I think some things would balance are fairly easy. This is one of those things where you're really having to be really, really, when I say that, I'm just talking about it's something that we're constantly putting in balance. We're, it, it's not just something that we just put in balance and it stays it stays there. It's something we're having to constantly move around to keep this in balance, okay? Because um, we are to be aware of what's happening around us. We are to be aware of what other people are doing, uh, and especially if they start doing something that is unscriptural, that is going in the wrong direction. We have to be aware of that. We can't just be ignorant of them. We can't just ignore it. Um, you know, as a, as a former pastor, I mean, I had to be sensitive to where my people were in my church. If somebody I felt like was, was going the wrong direction theologically, I had to be there to, to try to help them and correct them. If, if they were having personal struggles, I had to help them. And in doing that, I had to evaluate where they were. I had to understand what was happening to them so I couldn't just have a, ah, attitude. You know, I sort of had to have something that had a little bit more uh, backbone to it, a little bit more of a standard to it. Uh, so we had to be aware, aware. we had to be discerning. I think that in this context and other places in the scripture, I think the idea of not judging is not us not making the decision, us not making a decisive, it's not, a, it's not us passing out judgment. Can I put it that way? It's not us, like the judge decides, okay, this is how much sentence this person is going to get. This is going to be their punishment, okay? That is not for us to do, okay? Now, yes, as a church, as you know, the church sometimes has to take church discipline, actions of church discipline. Uh, we're led in that by, through, our, through our pastors. But um, we just have to be, we can, so that's why I'm saying balance. We don't want to just be like, oh, no, I don't care. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care what they think. I don't care, you know, where our church, what direction our church is going. We can't have that kind of an attitude. But we need to be very, 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 very careful not to, issue a sentence, not to end, issue a punishment or a condemnation for something that we have observed. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I'm trying to put it in some context where it, where it 
sort of comes out there and helps you with, with this. Uh, so he says, don't do that, don't, don't be judging, um, and so forth. Um, and he sums that particular section up in verse 12 with, there is one lawgiver. Interesting enough, and again, you've heard this mentioned more than one time from either by me or by Pastor Joe or by others, but again, as the original writers wrote, they would put what was important out of the sentence at the beginning of the sentence, okay? Now, again, we are very much uh, subject, verb, direct object, or predicate nominative per people. In English, very orderly that way. Yeah, we'll throw the adverbs and the articles and adjectives in there, but it's pretty much that order. You get subject, verb, and whatever follows after it. In the Greek language, it wasn't necessarily that way. There was a, often they would put something that was really important to them at the beginning of, the, of their sentence or verse or phrase. In this particular instance, in verse 12, the word that appears first is the word one. So he is wanting them to know without any question in, in their minds that the one lawgiver is what he's talking about. One lawgiver, not many, okay? And, and that one lawgiver is the only one that's able to, to uh, finalize the application of the law to the deeds of the individual. We cannot do that. Only God can do that. Only God can bring the law to bear on someone in that, in that regard, in that way. And then he has a section here about the warning. I would call it the warning against presumptive planning beginning of verse 13. Come now, you who, are, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil." I know that sometimes when I'm saying something to someone, I'll say something, I'll preface my remark or, or add to the end of my remark, if the Lord wills. I don't think this passage is saying we have to do that every time we make a plan or every time we make a statement of the future. I think we, it does say that we need to have that attitude, that that needs to be our primary attitude as we make a plan that this is, our, this is the plan we're making in our human wisdom, but that plan is dependent upon God, dependent on what God's will is, who, who, what God has for us tomorrow or the next day. Okay, so it's just, it's just that warning against maybe being frivolous, uh, again, being self-centered. Um, I'll do whatever I want to do. I don't, I don't answer to God. Uh, I don't know how far the people had gone that James is addressing here. We're not there. I can't tell you that. Um, and, and, and there's nothing wrong if you're comfortable and use the expression, if the Lord wills, often. That's, that's fine. I'm not deriding that. I'm just saying that I don't think it's a magic formula we have to throw out there all the time. If we know in our hearts and in our planning and our ideas about life that we are doing that knowing the fact that God is in control, that God is the, the ultimate planner, that our plans are always adjustable by God, and that we need to accept that. Um, but evidently, there was something going on here that James was aware of that he felt was just ready to, 
take over, ready to become another problem for these people. If they didn't bring themselves back into a proper relationship with God, into that proper humility to God, then they were going to be presumptuous. They were going to start going in an improper, an incorrect area or direction. And, and of course, it, it follows verse 10, where he's, we, they were just told to humble themselves in the, in the, uh, in the, in the sight of the Lord and, the, and so forth. So um, I'm not sure all that is wrapped up in that, but I, I just, I, I, you know, it is all that. And then he leaves us with a, um, he leaves us with a, with a um, very interesting verse in verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And pretty obvious statement, but he also sums up basically everything he said in the immediate context with just, if you're not hitting the mark, which is the idea of the word for sin is to miss the mark. If you're not hitting the mark, if you're not focused on that mark, if you're not focused on that target, then that's sin. That is, in fact, going astray, doing, doing the wrong things. So let me sum up the chapter. Stop fighting. Uh, make good choices and friends. Don't, don't be in, have friendship with the world. Don't have friendship with the world's principles. Have friendship rather with, with, uh, with God. Be faithful. Do not be an adulterer or adulteress. Uh, strive to be friends with God. Be responsive to the Holy Spirit as he lives within us and, and yearns to jealousy, as the New King James says. Uh, respond to those commands that we talked about in verse 7 through 10. Uh, again, commands that indicate some sense of to begin an action and also indicate the intensity, the importance of that action. Don't judge. doesn't say don't be discerning, don't be wise. It just says don't judge. Always plan with God in mind. And finally, wrapped up in verse 17, avoid sin. Don't allow sin to overtake us, to, not, to avoid missing the mark, missing the mark. A lot, just a heavy chapter, a lot in that chapter that can continue to be dug out, sifted through, and looking for things that will benefit each of us in our individual lives. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it is powerful. Thank you that it's sharpened two-edged sword. And thank you, Father, that encounter with your word of God, word, the word of God will change us, will keep us where we ought to be, will keep us in proper relationship with you and in proper relationship with one another. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.